This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. It's time to set sail. Hoist the mizzen. We're out on the high seas. the jib. Bosun? Bo- mast me. me. <laughs> Poop deck? <laughs> of the two of us, would you? which of us is the master and which is the commander, do you Ooh. think? Or is he, or is in master and commander is one guy, both of them? One guy. It is actually a title, master okay. and commander. Also, which one of us is the master and commander? <laughs> well, that's an interesting <laughs> question because one guy is also a different guy is the master. Mm-hmm. It's not confusing at all. Okay. Now, sure. of the three main... Ma- so it should be called masters and commander. It should be called masters and commander first. And of the three guys, do you think you would be the newly minted master and commander... Mm-hmm. the guy who got passed up for the job and is like the first lieutenant or whatever and he's really good at his job but he's kind of surly uh-huh. or the naturalist philosopher surgeon who is a doctor who's been conscripted to join the boat because he became friends with the master commander okay first getting big star trek original series from some of this two i would definitely be the surly guy who didn't get the promotion yeah <laughs> it sounds it sounds up my alley i would not be given my own boat i would be like someone who has never been on a boat mm-hmm. but i go out to dinner with a guy once and he's like you've got most of the skills i need and i like mm-hmm. you want to join me on this boat doctor like and- like the cut of your jib incidentally boats have jibs <laughs> Incidentally, so yeah, that's who we, I don't know who our mastering commander would be. The listener. Um, ooh, ooh, that's ooh, good, good one. <laughs> so good one. Capitalism. This is our podcast where one of us reads a book each week and tells the other person about it. I read Master and Commander by Patrick O'Brien. It is the first in the Aubrey Matron novels, of which there are many. There are twenty of these bad boys, including a. Part of a 21st book that was written after Patrick O'Brien died. <laughs> or, well, it was published after he died. That's I assume he wrote it before he died. <laughs> so many books. <laughs> it's a lot of books. And especially, like, so he was a writer for a lot of his life, and we'll talk about him a yeah. bit more in a minute. But he was born in 1914. This book was published in 1969, like when he was 55. And then there were 19 more of them that came out in the next 31 years. <laughs> Before he died in the year 2000. (laughs) Okay. That makes a little bit more sense to me how easily this book can feel, uh, for lack of a better word, stuffy, but mostly in the like, it, it wears its kind of old timey language pretty casually. Yeah. (laughs) And that's probably because the guy is, is that old. Like he knew a Uh grandpa who talked this way. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Um, this he was also just by by many accounts was just kind of a persnickety <laughs> fellow well, himself. Enough. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this is one of our um, last chance Patreon recommendations um, from Patrick. Ironically enough, hmm. hmm. Thank you, Patrick. It's a, it's a, it was an old man wearing <laughs> thick black glasses and a fake mustache. We've tried to have hmm. a hard fast rule against people recommending their own books on Patreon. I think one of them <laughs> slipped through. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, it's a relatively short book. Eh, relatively. First of a series of equally fun reads, as far as I can tell from ha- having read a few of the others. A bit dense with naval terminology, but surely not a problem compared to, say, Moby Dick. Uh, <laughs> book recommendations aside, the movie is fantastic. Like, seriously, one of my favorite movies ever. And I remember seeing that movie, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Uh, Sounds like a Pirates of the Caribbean subtitle it, but it's I think not it might have come out like the year before i don't remember and so that was 2003 okay. um, Pir- uh, 
Master Commander. Master Commander was. And Pirates of the, the Caribbean. I think also was 2000. It was 2003. Big so year yeah, for same boats. Year. Big year for boats in the theaters. Uh, Master and Commander starred Russell Crowe. I always lump it in in my head with Gladiator, which came out in 2000, because they're just like yep. a couple of movies where Russell Crowe is a big boy who loves to fight. <laughs> well, and in between... Uh, Gladiator and and Master and Commander, he's in A Beautiful Mind, where he's a big boy who loves to do math. Mm-hmm. Um, and this he loves to f- he's fighting numbers. Yes, that's what math is. And, is you're fighting the numbers and to prove imaginary Nazis. I think I don't remember mm-hmm. how that book goes. Um, mm-hmm. But also he was in Paul. He was with Paul Bettany in both <laughs> uh, Beautiful Mind and this one. When you stuttered, I was sure was sure that. <laughs> Blart was the <laughs> second word in that name. That was <laughs> he was in Paul Blart. No, not to my not, knowledge, but not that I know of. That so, like I knew what I didn't know about this book, and we'll talk about O'Brien in a second. Was that the movie, which is my exposure to anything about this, is a hodgepodge of like multiple novels, chiefly the one called The Far Side of the World, with like a few things from this book, like yeah, what I in. What, what I'd read was that it like it was like minorly controversial among hardcore O'Brien heads because oh. the film <laughs> the drew O'Brien boys. on characters and relationships and, and dialogue from all the from a bunch of the books, but kind of used its own plot instead of adapting one of the twenty books. I feel like that movie's gotten <laughs> really a, straightforwardly gotten yeah. a big like a lot of people I've seen on the internet being like, you know what? That movie does rock hard. Like that movie is a good (laughs) time. So maybe Mm -hmm. I'll go back and watch it after reading this book. Tell me about Mr. O'Brien, the Uh, the Patreon for this episode. (laughs) He was born, like I said, he was born in 1914. He died in the year 2000 in the future. Um, And do you remember when it just sounded so futuristic at like everything (laughs) That was supposed to be in the future was in the year 2000. I do, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Late 90s were a wild time. We could not conceive of a time that was like 13 (laughs) years past where we were. Um, Yeah, he uh, was the eighth of nine children. His mother died when he was four. His family was pretty impoverished. Um, There's not a ton that we know about like his early non-professional life because he was a pretty private feller. Um, we do know that he drove an ambulance and worked in intelligence during and after World War II, which is where he met his second wife. Um, he changed. So here's the thing. He was born in. Here's a thing. I okay. guess he was born Richard Patrick Russ. Yeah. He changed his name in 1945 just after he got married to his second wife. Um, this name change was reported on publicly in 1998 toward the end of his life and sparked like a, a controversy because some people were like upset that he wasn't Irish. Like his name kind of implied that he was. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, there were some intimations that he had had a, a first wife and some children who he had like abandoned and just like didn't have anything to do with oh, anymore. No. Um, and then there was also some like. You know, some like slippery slope press speculation along the lines of, well, what else is he lying about? Oh, no. Um, And then his stepson, uh, Nikolai Tolstoy, who also wrote a biography about him, kind of spoke about him less than flatteringly, like as a stepfather, at least. Um, A reviewer says of the biography, it, uh, quote, gives a portrait of a man who is cold, bullying, isolated, snobbish and super sensitive. Huh. Um. I guess that's neither here nor there with this with this book, except that um, I think to the extent that he uses kind of archaic, like slangy, lingo-y language in this book and that it's like hard to parse, like you mentioned, I think that's just like him being a super smart guy who wants to be super smart. <laughs> I found a quote where mm-hmm. he, this is from some uh, like critical essay collection and, and whatever, where he said, obviously I have lived very much out of the world. I know little of present-day Dublin or London or Paris, even less of post-modernity, post-structuralism, hard rock or rap, and I cannot write with much <laughs> conviction about the contemporary scene. These kids today with their ham radios and their MTV. So he seems very comfortable mm-hmm. writing in this oldie-timey mode. This old-timey register, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, he, yeah he, he wrote a, his... He started writing like pretty early in life. He has short story collections that were published as early as 1934. Um, 
His father helped him publish his first book, a book called Caesar, which I know nothing else about. Mm. It's uh, one of those uh, Red Link Wikipedia books. Oh, love it. <laughs> you know, those. that book might not exist. Um, yeah, it was published in 1930. Um, and he, yeah, he published a few things like throughout the, the 50s. The most notable one for the purposes of our discussion, probably. Um, there was there are a couple of books like more targeted at children, like children's adventure stories mm. called The Golden Ocean, which came out in 1956, and The Unknown Shore in 1959. Um, so there was a U.S. publisher who read those and was like, I'm trying to find somebody who can do me like a Horatio Hornblower kind of sure. adventure series yeah. thing. Maybe... This maybe this guy can do it. Maybe okay. this guy can help. <laughs> so he like the U.S. publisher and then Macmillan like commissioned him to do Master and Commander. It was initially rejected by Macmillan for being too slangy. Um, I found like a quote from an editor of his who <laughs> talked about always having to try and get him to tone all that stuff down. <laughs> um, but yeah, it came out and like brought you know over time brought him a level of fame and recognition that he he had never had before. Um, and yeah, these books just keep coming out A a reviewer, Patrick Reardon in the Chicago Tribune called the series, the, uh, a single 5,000 page book, which I'm just thinking of our, the, our dear friend, TV critic, our friend, Catherine, the TV critic who loves it when people call a TV show, a 10 hour movie. So this is like the 10 hour movie of Of books, books. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. What, what is interesting about this one? is just like it it ends naturally but it doesn't have a central plot aside from like the arc of the characters mm-hmm. um it just happens to take place in the like early stages of the Napoleonic Wars I think mm-hmm. I think it's in 1800 yeah um that's right so it's like I don't know just kind of there and then it's over and you know our characters will be set up for the next book. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see something about like the resurgence, the resurgence in interest in this book. W.W. Um, w. Norton, like some guy working there, discovered them on a plane flight in '89. Mm-hmm. Discovered them. <laughs> I don't know. He was like they were just sitting in the seat next to him, and he's like, "What is this, Master Commander?" He's like, "I got oh, a five-hour these... flight. What's what's up with this book? These are interesting." Um, Oh, he was having a he was having a drink with a buddy, and mm-hmm. his buddy was like, "Hey, you should uh, check out these books," mm-hmm. and he did. And then he started publishing them again. And then and that's in the '90s we get this like run of republications of all of these books. Yeah. So O'Brien Mania, O'Brien Mania. We were all, we all living experienced it. it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we, we mm-hmm. didn't think the future would ever come. We were too caught up in O'Brien Mania. Yeah, we were just listening <laughs> to Nirvana and reading Master and Commander. <laughs> In the early 90s. What do you think about boats, Andrew? I mean, I think they're neat. I think the ocean, I, the ocean is, needs to be treated with respect. Yep. And I don't want a boat to be the only thing that stands between me and the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not, I'm not interested in going on a cruise. I like to do like a kayak or like a small boat. Yes. Uh-huh. Love a lake. I like to, to like go on a boat that's docked and maybe eat some kind of pirate themed meal but sure i'm not super interested in like sailing on the open sea as a as a concept yeah i just don't want to go away for that long mm-hmm. like i love to go away but not for that long yeah well and a cru- like cru- and especially if you're talking about like a cruise ship that's just a hotel you can't leave so i, I don't no like i don't see the appeal <laughs> i don't know how anybody goes on cruises that's... It's a it's a petri dish for norovirus, which I already get from having my kid in group daycare, yep. and then also it's a hotel that you can't leave. So <laughs> just no thanks. Oh, what, the original Hotel California is a cruise ship. Yeah, yeah. Anything it's else? In fact, mm-hmm. we should talk about before. Um, I mean, there's a little bit on just like sourcing for this oh, book. Oh yeah. Like he and and I know I don't know if you read. Apparently, there's like an intro to. Yes, this I have book. some text from that. Yeah. Okay, um, and maybe you can read a little bit from that. But just just that he says, you know, he's he's done a lot of uh, research. He says, uh, so when to describe a fight, I have logbooks, official letters, contemporary accounts, or the participants' own memoirs to vouch for every exchange. 
Um, yet, on the other hand, I have not felt bound to precise chronological sequence uh, within a context of general historical accuracy. I've changed names, places, and minor events. Um, and he has said that authenticity is a jewel. So it's just like a lot of, I don't know if he ever was like, I mean, certainly he was not sailing on a boat in 1800 because he no. was not born yet. No. And he hadn't gotten the Willy Wonka minus spray that <laughs> made, made him go back in time or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I also know that the, uh, the main guy, Aubrey yes. is based on this guy, Thomas Cochran. Yep. Who lived from 1775 to 1860, and he was just a good, a good captain and admiral of good boats. At least one or two of the major events in this story are definitely based on stuff that he did. Yes. So, like the, um, the things that he did are real in the book. I think the personality that O'Brien makes up for Aubrey is mostly invented. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's. Was there anything else about? Uh, authenticity or sourcing from the book that you wanted to I'll I have to read. the larger quote in front of me so I'll read a few other spots of it you know he says the pages of Beetson James and the Naval Chronicle the Admiral the Admiralty papers in the public record office the biographies in Marshall and O'Byrne are filled with actions that may be a little less spectacular but that are certainly no less spirited actions that few men could invent and perhaps none present with total conviction that's what he talks about going straight to the source mm-hmm. and the log books and he says, um, oh, so when you, I think your version alighted something. So he's not felt bound to precise chronological sequence. The naval historian will notice, for example, that Sir James Salmarez's action in the gut of Gibraltar has been postponed until after the grape harvest, just as he will well, see that at I least mean, one of my Sophie's battles was fought by quite another sloop. Wow. I can't believe I mean, I knew that, that he had done that, but it's just wild to hear him admit it, you know? Yeah. He's, mm-hmm. he, he seems to have read all the stuff and mm-hmm. then he wants to write a book. Like he's not, he, to your point, he, these characters are of his own invention, um, but they are definitely, he's trying to line them up with real events, which is, I think, part of the project here. Sure. Uh, well, let's take a quick break. And then uh, we can set sail for the rest of this episode. All right. Craig, if you want to be the master and commander of the World Wide Web, what you need is a website. I do. And if you need a website, then you need Squarespace. Oh. That's what I think. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. Maybe should we be doing, doing like a boat thing? Oh, or... are a vast. I need <laughs> website. Ho! If a, if a website you need, <laughs> then here Squarespace here be. Uh, X Squarespace the spot. Is, uh, ye scurvy dog Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites they give you beautiful drag and drop tools and easy to use templates and 24-7 customer support and all kinds of other things that you need to make webbing easy Arr. it used to be it used to be hard but now it's easy and that's because of Squarespace uh, here's some stuff that we like about Squarespace uh, hoist the mainsail here we go uh, stand out in any inbox with Squarespace email campaigns collect email subscribers and convert them into loyal customers Start with an email template and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo. Built-in analytics measure the impact of every send. Avast. Create pro-level videos effortlessly. The Squarespace Video Studio app helps you make and share engaging videos to tell your story, grow your audience, and drive sales. You can also gain powerful insights from the crow's nest with analytics tools that let you see who's visiting your site and how they're interacting with your content. Uh, you can see traffic sources, time on site, most read content, audience, geography, and more, including maybe if they're looking at your site from a boat. Probably. Probably. And then you, you own, uh, you won't have to bury your treasure to hide it because you own all the content you put on the Squarespace platform. They offer one-click data portability. So if you need to pack up your ship and, uh, and put away the anchor and leave in your boat, uh, you can do that. <laughs> 
if you want to strike out on the high seas with Squarespace, go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Matey. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Andrew, you're out on the high seas. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs things from you, but you got your own jibs and rigs and sails to maintain. How do you balance mm-hmm. the two? Boy, I don't know. I wish somebody would help me <laughs> figure this out <laughs> it, because I just can't. It is not easy to do this because giving, 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 even on the high seas, can leave you feeling a little stretched thin. I want to tell you that therapy can give you the tools to strike a better balance, even if you're on a ship out <laughs> on the seven seas. Uh, no, in all, in all honesty, all you land lovers, I really do think that therapy is a great tool for figuring out the balance that you need in your life. You can take stock of what you need and what others need from you. Uh, and then, you know, you can decide whether or not you have time to hoist the mainsail or whether or not you need to go below deck. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and on your schedule. I bet if you have the internet on your boat, you could use it. Uh, yeah. So find more balance, set sail for better seas with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash overdue. Ahoy! Come aboard! Our, I've got a tale to are. tell you. Mm-hmm. Are there pirates in this book? No. Is the pirates okay? I so mean, the pirate stuff's not strictly. The, there strictly are some applicable. guys. There's some guys who show up early. Uh, when J- Captain Jack Aubrey, the master and commander, is mm-hmm. uh charged with protecting a small convoy, mm-hmm. I think those guys, they might still be with the French, but I don't, I don't remember if they are like full on French Navy or not. Mm-hmm. But this is not like blackbeard style piracy even though what happens in much of this book does feel like that type of naval conquesting um there's a lot of prize how do you you mean okay prize hunting does it does this feel like a cool adventure book for boys like is that the kind of the thing that it's going for or what is or is it like uh Here's a story that also is a manual about how to use a ship, like Moby Dick. Like, where does it exist on the spectrum between, like, Treasure Island and Moby Dick? Uh, Leans more towards Moby Dick because also it is a book about what it means to have authority, what it means to follow orders or not, uh, what it means to have loyalty to causes, nations, and yourself, Mm -hmm. and also... Uh, do you know that we have to set the jib and flip the boink boink and do the <laughs> shabadoo and all the stuff that I don't understand? And so mm. there's some cool adventures. Now, are these stuff. all tech? These are all technical terms that were found in the book. Yeah, I assume. yeah, the flip job and the boink boink. Totally, the boink boink. Page mm-hmm. seventy-seven. Go look it up. He definitely. <laughs> explained. No, I am gonna send you there. You know how you like a book that has a map. Yeah, like a book that has a map at the beginning. Um, this book sort of has a map of a boat at the beginning. <laughs> just like a layout of the boat. I like that too. I mean, it if just, it's if the ship's gonna if it's gonna be like on a spaceship or something. It tells you I all know of the is. sails. I just sent mm-hmm. it to you. Okay. Let's um, go look at these beautiful Now sails. there are more I the way that my uh, That has a lot of sails. Yeah. <laughs> are you sure we need this many? This is one, two, three, four, five, six. The 1920, 20 sales, there's, there's 21 sales. A lot of sales. And let me tell you, there's when, as many sales as there are master commander books. <laughs> if you've never hoisted sales yourself, it I totally think you're going to get a little lost in all the hoisting that goes on in this book. Mm-hmm. Because every once in a while, a new stay tail or top sail or top mast or jib or shabba ding dong gets like spread out to i'm sure that's deeply offensive to boat people when you keep doing that <laughs> i just don't know it i just and i don't the book is not 
actively trying to teach it to me. Like mm-hmm. that is. I mean, it gives you it gives you this picture where you can look up the four top mass stay sale and the four top gallant. It does. I will say this book resists tutorializing the sailing experience. Okay, sure. Um, because there's no audience insert character who has never been on a boat. So before. I alluded to the three main characters at the top of the show. We have Captain Jack Aubrey. Um, we'll talk about him a bit more. We also have this guy, the first lieutenant, uh, James Dillon. We'll talk about him. The closest to an audience insert is Dr. Stephen Matron in the sense that he is not accustomed to sailing around on a man-of-war ship, a sloop. He doesn't know the difference between a frigate and a brig, and he doesn't know all the weights of the different guns. And at one point, he tries to ask a guy to explain what the things are without using naval terms. <laughs> one sailor's like, I can't do that. <laughs> and and Matron being the philosopher that he is, he's like, you know, honestly, I wouldn't want you to give them other names. Those are their names. That's what they are. They serve a purpose. Um, and so there are parts of the book where he is kind of getting, uh, not pejoratively, but getting schooled on kind of naval culture and the different terminology and what it is to live this sort of life. But that, mm-hmm. I would say, is not really the focus of the novel or it is at least not the primary way that the novel works. There's a lot okay. more of Jack Aubrey's perspective and his whole deal where he, prior to the events of the book, he had been a midshipman, he had worked on other boats, um, and... He's just kind of wasting around, waiting to get a captainship, Mm -hmm. and he finally lucks into one because some other guy gets promoted. And so then it is a book about like how this particular guy functions as a captain, what it's like for him, how he's good at it, how he's bad at it. Uh, And so there's not as much room for like. It's not a a young boy's let's learn about boats. It is a book that Uh might inspire you to go go learn learn about about boats. boats. So you can understand why each of these 21 sales does. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And there's there's some interesting like factoids that I picked up along the way, but I struggled personally with kind of maintaining the geography of the ship in Mm -hmm. my head. And that might be, there's probably a number of reasons for that, but chief among them i would guess is like o'brien was so familiar with them from reading so much stuff that he's just like i don't, i can tell you the difference between all these things i've li- yeah you know yeah i've lived this he's, in my mind he's not super interested in bringing you along it, i mean he wants you to read his book yeah presumably but but if you don't know the terminology, it's not his fault and it's not his job to teach you them. No. And the stuff that is, I think, I don't think I missed any, but the the beats where like the ship is supposed to feel cool and they're doing stuff that is impressive. Like, I don't need to know exactly what sail was just hoisted to get that they are like uncommonly good at catching the wind and, <laughs> you know... Aubrey has, with Dylan's assistance, uh, drilled his men on this kind of impressive broadside, uh, broadsiding like routine, where the ship can't take. And I, th- this might be a thing that other naval people did. I, I'm sure um, it can't take firing all of its guns at once on one uh-huh. side because it would just like wreck the boat. <laughs> Like that the, makes sense. I mean, it's there's a big kickback from a big cannon, yep, uh-huh. I assume. And so um, he drills them on being able to kind of roll down the side of the ship so they all fire, like, in sequence. And it's a way to keep the pressure up and also, like, minimize the physical torque that is, like, wreaking sure. havoc on the boat itself. Yeah. Um, so stuff, like, stuff of that nature comes across pretty clearly as like okay these guys do know what they're doing even if they're all still kind of figuring out how to work together and what's what is that like to to read like is it is it fun does it feel a little like dry and technical like where does it because it's it is both very it sounds like it's very like involved and occupied with 
doing a bunch of naval lingo stuff and being like technically correct. It also is more about character arcs and vibes than about like a, a big story that's happening. Yep. So like, what is, what is the, is it, is it fun to read? What's, what's the fun of reading it is. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more. I think the fun of reading it is the, is the characters and the like different scenarios, like naval scenarios that get set up along the way. So the opening of the book, and I can kind of speed through this quickly is that Aubrey gets his ship he met Matron at a concert, and Matron got mad at him for bopping his foot like early on the beat, and <laughs> and then they both bumped into each other later and were like, "Hey, I'm having a real bad day. Like my life is kind of not great. Can we have dinner about it?" And they became fast mm-hmm. friends. Well, that's nice. And then in on the way to dinner, Aubrey gets his boat orders, and he's like, he finds out that this guy's a doctor, and he's like, "You gotta come on my boat. You're cool. Like, let's go." <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then. The early part, and I thought this, I found this a little slow, maybe just because I knew that the book was going to involve boats shooting at each other and I wanted to get to that part. (laughs) But the part where he is like, he gets introduced to the sloop, the, um, the HMS Sophie or the HM Sophie, and he's like, oh, it's a slightly older boat. Most of this crew kind of knows what they're doing, but they're a little old-fashioned. That's probably a good thing, but I am going to have to whip them into shape. Uh, I want to go prize hunting. That's me, Jack Aubrey. I want to get out there and capture some merchant vessels and get paid and then get a bigger boat. Yeah. That's what. You, that's the progression. Yes. That's the character progression. He needs to level up. class that he's chosen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so we go through a little bit of like, Okay, we gotta get, we gotta meet the purser, we gotta meet the bosun, we gotta meet the first lieutenant who James Dillon knew Matron from some time in Ireland. They're both Irish, and it's a little secretive. They were Hmm. both members of the United Irishmen. It was like an anti-British, like Irish uh, autonomy movement, and like you know protection i think for protection for catholic irish as well basically just fighting back against the british crown um and so there's a couple spots in the book where the two of them and dylan more so than matron has like some latent irish like nationalist loyalty Mm -hmm. that he has to struggle with as being a member of the royal navy and like aubrey doesn't have that type of he has a simpler version of like well i'm in the navy and I'm going to do what I can in the Navy. That seems fun to me. <laughs> um, and then Matron has a, like, he didn't like how, he hasn't liked how different revolutions have gone because it just creates other power. And so he's kind of jaded on the whole concept of, like, movements and is, like, an individual. He's a rugged individualist. Yeah, same. I, I know what this is like. <laughs> yes, of course. I say this all about all the time about you. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's like the core character triangle that especially once they get out to sea and are doing sea adventure stuff like is pretty with the, yeah, with the jib with the jib and whatnot and the flying jib. Yes. Um, are pretty compelling. So mm-hmm. like first there's like, OK, you got your boat. You got a this guy. Um, Captain Hart gives him his orders. And he's like, you got to go protect a convoy. Um, and so. They got a great big convoy, and they got to <laughs> protect it in the Mediterranean. They're based out of um, the island of Menorca uh, in the okay. Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of French and Spanish ships all around. And the big boss, Admiral Keith, is like, you know where you got to hit them in the purse. I'm all about, you know, taking out the merchant ships because that's how you get them. That's how you win. Like, there, there's kind of this, like... You gotta shoot the shoot the healer. You do. First. It's yes. You gotta go for the healer for the support for the class. Support classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's how you you know wind down their war machine. So there's mm-hmm. the the thing that Jack wants to do after you know he is in, fully in charge is like go out hunting for merchant vessels. But first he has to do his convoy. Um, convoy goes fine at one point. Uh, I think it's some French guys or some maybe guys from French Algiers. Uh, try to pick off one of his convoy boats, and we get like our first fight, and it goes pretty okay. goes pretty well. 
they reclaim their ship, and I, I think they capture the the one of the raiding ships. A thing I had never thought about, Andrew, and this happens okay. multiple times in the book, when you capture someone else's boat, yeah, and you want to bring it back to the hub town in your video mm-hmm. game for right. prize money, uh-huh. you have to put some of your dudes on the boat to bring it yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. So there's at least one encounter later in the book where Jack's like, dang, I got all my named characters on other boats because we were too good at stealing boats. Mm-hmm. And so now I need to run away because like we don't have enough guys uh-huh. if we get attacked. It's just like stuff like that that is kind of a, a duh, that's how it must have w- worked thing. But as someone who's mm-hmm. never like... I'm not opening up books of Admiral's papers to learn about this time. Patrick mm-hmm. O'Brien's the only way I'm going to learn about these people. Yeah, and my like the way I would play is I would never capture more than like one other boat yes. at a time because I didn't want to stretch my guys too thin. Exactly. But I get that there's another that's like a faster expansion strategy that can pay <laughs> off big if you can if you can do it right. It's true. Um but so he they do well in the convoy. He goes and reports to Admiral Keith, and Admiral Keith's like, "Great job! You get to go on a cruise. That's what they call it when you get you don't have orders to do anything but just go out there and cause trouble. Mm-hmm. Like get out there, find some merchants, take their stuff, and we'll see you later." Like they it sounds like basically state aligned piracy. piracy? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And cool. the the guys on the crew love it. They're like, we're going cruising. We got a month long cruise. Let's get going. Like they don't want to sit around babysitting other boats. Like they just want to mm-hmm. hit the high seas and roam around and mess up other dudes. Yeah, sure. Um, And that's where most of the action of the book uh, occurs in this kind of middle section where, they are encountering vessels and they are sometimes engaging with and sometimes running from other military vessels. And sometimes they are, uh, you know, capturing merchant vessels and bringing them back. Sometimes when they go ashore, uh, people get into trouble. Jack, Jack should always be at sea. Like he is not meant to, he's not meant for land. No, he gets drunk. He shoots off at the mouth. His men, you know, kind of inspired by him, also cause more trouble than they should. Um, and he starts having an affair with one of his superiors' wife. Wife. Nice. Um, that comes back to bite him later. When he, I am sure it does. He gets passed over for promotion later because he did that. Um, and. So he really just, he should always be out a sea. Um, so he can't get into trouble. So he can't get into more trouble. But he is kind of a hot shot. Like he, mm-hmm. he is always like, you know, we could go do that. We could go take that ship. We could do something kind of kooky and, and escape this. Like one thing I think that made it into the movie, they're being pursued by a bigger warship. And right, right when night falls... They set off a little raft that they have put uh, lanterns on and then, like, push it away from their boat. Mm-hmm. And so then from the distance that the other boat is, they think that's where they are because they've turned out all their lanterns. Uh-huh. And then, that's a, that's, that's a pretty good ruse. There's a lot of rusing. There's a lot of deceit, which is neat. There's, like, stuff like that. There is... Because um, well, I think we've we've... We've played the video game Sea of Thieves, so yes. we know a little bit about life on the high seas. We do. We're experts. And if you're just like straightforwardly chasing another boat in broad daylight, like you both got the same water, like maybe you both have like similarly outfitted boats. There's like not a lot that you could do to like catch up with somebody. So you just got you got to create honeypots and you got to come up with cool broadside strategies. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's all about strategy and, and trickery and like as as much as it is about your skill at doing anything, you also need to be able to get in people's heads, I guess. Yeah, and like Jack is always like, "Oh, you you're telling me there's a boat out there. Well, we should go figure out what that boat's deal is." And by the t- like, 
sometimes when they get close, he's like, okay, great, we're going to capture this boat. And sometimes they get a little closer and he's like, oh, crap, I, <laughs> we need to come up with a scheme. We need a, mm-hmm. we need something, we need a ruse. And so sometimes they, this is something you do when you attack another boat sometimes, Andrew, is you pu- you don't hoist your, you don't fly around with your country's flag flying all the time. No, no. That's a way to get attacked. So you keep that down and you keep all your dudes in the boat and then just have a couple guys up top and try to look like a merchant vessel. Like right. try to look like you're harmless. Mm-hmm. Maybe you put up another country's flag. Maybe mm-hmm. you pretend that you're Danish for a period of time. And <laughs> I then, mean, who who has who, who among us has not pretended to be Danish to get out of trouble? And then you roll up next to this other boat and here's a here's a fug quote. The the one Danish guy on the boat, their own shipmate Anderson called out over the water to their fellow countrymen Talking foreign as easy as kiss my hand to the silent admiration of all beholders. <laughs> what? what? Excuse me. I don't. I guess he was good at it. Uh huh. Is if is what that means? As easy yeah, as talking kiss foreign. my hand. Yeah. You know. Um, you can talk foreign. Another good scheme that uh, Matron comes up with, kind of on a whim. And what's fun about Matron is that the 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 sailors don't seem to like they don't treat him like a kind of worthless landlubber like obviously he's the ship's doctor so he's very important um but they don't hold it against him that this is his first time he seem he he engenders himself well um and sometimes that's when they are probably going to get boarded and might lose and he <laughs> runs up out of the crowd and is like hey do y'all know what to do it, do you are you guys familiar with the plague? Have you ever seen the plague? We got some guys over here that we're not sure about. Is it boobos? Like, should we be looking mm-hmm. for boobos? And the mm-hmm. other boat's like, see you later. Bye. I yeah. don't. Yeah. Um, That's a good ruse too. You just pretend to have the plague, and where they aren't going to ask any follow up questions. <laughs> no. And that's a that's an interesting follow up. There is a passage earlier in the book where they come across a boat where people definitely do have plague. And they're like, yo, mm-hmm. we need a doctor. And Matron's like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. And Aubrey, Jack Aubrey is like, you can't leave. They have the plague. <laughs> mm-hmm. We leave, We go away now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another, P- Matron also objects at one point where uh, against their will by, a, by another British officer, they are just given like 50 prisoners to take back to port. And they don't have, like... A lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, they don't have the resources for it. Um, And now maybe that's because Jack left port a little early without getting as much water as he was supposed to. Who could say? Jack, you scamp. Uh, But he definitely leaves them on an island somewhere. (laughs) And is later, like, you know, reports back, like, listen, we didn't have the stuff. We had to protect the guys in the Navy. What do you want? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Um. It's it's an interesting the the clo- the like two climactic things that happen and I was waiting for something like this to happen because I was I I didn't really know what was in the movie and what wasn't from this book. So I was kind of expecting mm-hmm. some longer chase sequence cuz I feel like that was a part of the movie, but the closest thing to that is there's this Spanish frigate called the Cacafuego. Ooh. And it's a big one. It's got a lot of guns. Let me just, I think I can just pull this up quickly, which, how many guns the different boats have. So the sloop, the Sophie, is a 14-gun brig sloop. Okay. And the Cacafuego is a 32-gun Zebic frigate. So it's it's big. Uh-huh. It's got more guns and they're bigger guns. Mm-hmm. And so at one point... They see the Cacafuego out in the distance. Jack thinks about pursuing it, but it gets away. And you're like, okay, well, maybe that'll come back. You know, they messed sure. up some Spanish merchants. It does, of course, it does come back. Mm-hmm. And the Cacafuego's chasing them. It's trying to take them down. They're getting shot at. And the biggest, like, continuous battle sequence in the book. And I think this is, excuse me, this is like the cell uh, for this book in addition to the kind of memorable characters is sequences like this where it's like okay we got to get into this 
we got to get up to this giant boat. We're going to get as close as we can. We're going to basically be diving under their big guns. And we're going to be maybe a few yards away. And we're going to shoot our guns up through their hull and through their deck and through their sails and their dudes Mm -hmm. and just like mess them up. Uh-huh. And then that is like the opening salvo of this really long, elaborate fight sequence that then ends with them boarding the boat. They know they have way fewer men than the Fuego, so they have to like board them in such a way that they think that the other guys think they have even more dudes. Mm-hmm. So they go in with one wave of guys, then Dylan leads a second wave of guys, and then from the boat... Uh, Matron is yelling like 50 more men like get, grab more men it's good that every other boat that they encounter and you know, on the high seas is stocked with like dollars yep. you can't like figure any of this uh-huh. <laughs> like I, I guess I guess maybe you'd be risk averse enough to just like not chance it when you're interacting with another boat on the high seas. But that seems, to, I don't know. This stuff all seems pretty transparent to me. I'm glad you say that because the, there are a couple points where people, his superiors reference Jack as being like lucky. I think that's why yeah. he gets his cruise. Like lucky Jack Aubrey is like a thing. And he, it's a combination of this kind of like devil may care. I'm going to go for the prize attitude. And it just, at least for a portion of the book just keeps working out. And so they're like, well, you know, you know, sailors are very superstitious. There's a lot of just like go with it and we'll, we'll let it run until the, the dice stop rolling in your favor kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, they get this boarding party through, they get the second boarding party through. um, And the, the way that it is written at this point, I think I have this text pulled here. Um, this is where it goes from like a lot of jargon, which I'll I'll read for um, comparison in a second. And this is just like, it's a battle sequence where stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and now there was hard fighting. Now there were cruel blows given and received a dense mass of struggling men tripping among the spars, scarcely room to fall, beating, hacking, pistoling one another and detached fights of two or three men together around the edges, yelling like beasts. And it goes on about what Jack is doing specifically. But I was struck that O'Brien took a moment to be like, it's mayhem. This is not about people doing cool stuff. Like, these are just guys hitting each other with guns. And they're all in close quarters. And it's a mess. And it's brutal. Um, That stood out to me relative to the, like, for lack of a better word, hijinks on the Mm -hmm. high seas part. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is very evocative and emotional. And contrast that with, like, when we're talking about the boat. Um, the hawser had been made fast to the middle of the yard and then laid along it almost to its starboard extremity being tied in half a dozen places from the slings to the yard arm with stoppers bands of spun yarn the hawser ran from the yard arm up to the top block at the masthead and so down through another block on deck and thence to the capstan so as the capstan turned the yard rose from the water sloping more and more nearly to the vertical until it came aboard quite upright steered carefully end on through the rigging so what's the what's the short version of that? It's just like he he lifted a sail up. Yeah, the sail <laughs> like the sail moved when you turned the capstan. I think. Uh huh. Uh huh. But a, this is like every single <laughs> element of it. Knot and rope and yeah. And okay. you do in that battle with the with the Cacafuego, you do start to appreciate in those fights. It isn't, and this is our Sea of Thieves experience. Like most of the time, you're just trying to land a hit with a cannonball, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And At all. These guys are like, you got to shoot through the sails. You, If you bust up the rigging, then the boat can't move. Like, there's just the next... They're all level two and up in terms of what it is to to fire a cannon mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the big climactic battle. I, I, I really like that it ended with hand-to-hand stuff at a scale that the book hadn't seen before. Yeah, because are you still dealing with like individual characters once you get into a fight sequence, or are you mostly just reading like the kinetic action of of like stuff that is happening? Most of the time, you are. Um, it does a pretty good job of giving you either like what Jack is responsible for or what uh, James Dillon is responsible for when we're in like a chase sequence. Um, 
And sometimes, like, we'll talk about individual gunners who are getting, like, injured or not getting injured or something like that. In that battle sequence, that paragraph is, like, really zoomed out, but then the rest of it is, like, tightly focused to Jack's experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do have this, you know, kind of cinematic thing where, like, you can see the the named character, like, in the, like, frothing, you know, fracas. What am I saying? (laughs) Um so that's like the big battle that Jack gets all this acclaim for. They do have to like keep all those guys below deck in their captured boat and convince them, even though they only have like a few dozen guys and there's like a hundred Spaniards down there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he doesn't get a lot of accolades for it because uh, he's sleeping with that guy's wife. <laughs> and that, and that. Ca- well, you win some, you lose some. And I think that captain tries to argue that like the captain of that frigate wasn't like a properly commissioned officer so like the honor of what happened is like busted it's like something weird like a technicality or whatever Mm -hmm. um and the crew is all kind of bummed for jack also james dillon doesn't make it out of that fight and so then it's interesting to read the first novel in this series that are defined by the captain and the doctor and there being this third guy in this book that kind of tied them together is kind Mm -hmm. of neat um and they go out on one last convoy where Jack's feeling a little dejected and a little kind of beat down by the system. so Because he didn't get the promotion because he's a master and commander and adulterer? (laughs) Okay, cool. And he kind of, he can go faster than his, the ship he's protecting. So he slides off into a bay, sees a merchant ship, and he knows he can't capture it. That's not part of his orders. But he's like, we could blow it up if we want. And so they, you know, do some blowing ships up and then a bunch of French frigates roll up on them. And there's this like chase sequence where they're really in danger. He's like tossing the cannons off the boat into the sea and like throwing out all their food so that they can go as fast as possible, but they still get caught. Mm -hmm. And then the climactic battles of the book from a like a, a war perspective, he's not a part of. They're like waiting to be transferred in a prisoner exchange and they are watching these two giant ship battles that involve like multiple ships blowing up because people are shooting their like stores of ammunition and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that they take this like hotshot uh, character and then sideline him for two like major historical battles. Sure. To, to do the thing where it like, it doesn't make him, more of a hero than the historical record can handle. Right? right, yeah, you can't you can't make it be like, yeah, this guy actually in real life would have been Napoleon. Yes. And not, and not just <laughs> some like guy. What yeah. if there was a Luke Skywalker of this war kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. Um yes. and then it ends with him successfully being acquitted in his court martial cuz every if you lose a boat in the Royal Navy, you get court martialed cuz mm-hmm. you have to explain what the heck happened. Yeah. Um, and it ends with him being acquitted and then being like, all right, well, found him, found him guilty of being awesome. It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like he's guilty of being a rad dude. And so they, he will probably get to command a boat again, you know? Um, I bet at least like 19 more times. Yeah, I think so. What if every book ended with a court martial because he'd blown up another book? <laughs> Aubrey, you did it again. It's possible. <laughs> You're a loose cannon, much like the cannons on your ships, <laughs> but you get but you get results. Um, I do want to just read this uh, passage I alluded to from Steve Matra and the Doctor, who's a very he's a very charming mm-hmm. character. Um, I've probably given him short shrift on this episode, but he is you know your philosopher scientist who likes natural. He likes he's always like peeping a new fish or like studying a bird. <laughs> Love to peep a fish. Um, but then when he's asked about like the revolution and patriotism, this is the quote I alluded to before. Um, I've had such a sickening of men in masses and of causes that I would not cross this room to reform parliament or prevent the union or to bring about the millennium. I speak only for myself, mind, but man as a part of a movement or a crowd is indifferent to me. He is inhuman and I have nothing to do with nations or nationalism. The only feelings I have are for men as individuals. My loyalties, such as they are, are to private persons alone. And he goes on to critique patriotism. Um... I don't know that I agree with him fully, but that I'm not a doctor in the year 1800 on a boat. 
That's true. You're not. I think you're a lot of things, but you're none of those. <laughs> I'm none of those things. I just I think it is an interesting character type and an interesting like way to get some. He is there to help you give some thematic weight to what is going on. Like you could imagine sure. the leaner adventure novel that is just Aubrey doing cool stuff. Um, and then you have Matron to balance it as like, well, what does it mean that like now that you're a captain, you have to like schedule time to go hang out with the guys down below deck. And mm-hmm. that like when you do invite other people to dinner, they only ever say yes to you. And so like what world is being reflected back to you, Jack? Um, he talks about like, in an era where all these countries are fighting each other out on the open sea, but you're so rarely ever at home, like what is your identity? Is it a thing that like based on where you were born or is it a thing that kind of you create and co-create with people that you meet out in the world? Like mm-hmm. Matron's got a lot of interesting things to say and it, it never feels like uh, O'Brien is pausing the book to deliver some philosophy, right? In the way that maybe Moby Dick feels, Mm-hmm. It's more like here's a character who is a little bit of a fish out of water, forgive the ocean pun, um, mm-hmm. who can kind of muse a little uh, differently about the events in the book. So, okay. Have I gotten you more interested on going on boats? Wasn't necessarily my goal. I'm just I mean, wondering. There's so much in here about boats 200 years ago and so much less about boats now. Oh yeah. I just like, yeah, sure. I'd be more interested to go to a boat 200 years ago and get the plague and learn about all the different (laughs) sails and stuff. But boats today, I mean, they just don't make them like they used to really don't. I can't talk about boats today. Mm -hmm. Um, You could bring your fiddle on the boat. You could play some music on the boat. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I love to fiddle. That's a big part of this book, too. They like to play, <laughs> they like to play music on the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I had an okay time with this one. I don't know that I have the the real interest to read more of them. It also, yeah, it sounds like it resists sweeping generalizations or, or I don't know. Like, it, it's doing a bunch of stuff, and if you like that stuff, there's more books. And if you don't like that stuff, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just don't have a frame of reference also to other like naval adventure stories to compare it. Um, it does give you a strong sense of the era because of uh-huh. the, just the concerns when they go ashore and there's, they refer to like, there's rumors of peace, everybody mm-hmm. says. And you know everybody on the boat doesn't want that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, if people want to, you know, want the experience of uh, going on a boat, but they don't want to go on a boat, this might do you. Yeah, you go on a boat and in a time machine. At this hot tub time machine? Mm, a hot tub's like no, a boat. A hot tub is like a reverse boat. Oh. It's a container filled with water that's keeping all the air yep. out. And a boat is filled with air and it's trying to keep the water out. Is tub just how we pronounce boat backwards? Taub. <laughs> Think about it. I'm just asking questions. I don't. Okay, let's. You can send us your. Can we? Can we stop? You can send us an email <laughs> about your favorite boat, uh, whether or not you've been on it. Just your favorite boat. Overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, social media at overduepod. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there, we have some books that we have read and the ones we we're going to read. Read along with us. It's a fun time. Uh, we also have a Patreon project, patreon.com slash overduepod. Uh, subscribe and get access to our Discord and bonus episode recordings early and early access to Sand by Me, our current long read project yeah. about Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. We just recorded. Uh, episode uh, six, I think, six. and I need to upload it like today. Yeah. So as we record this today, as you listen to this like several days ago, so <laughs> whatever. Join the thing. It'll whatever, be there man. for you. Yeah, whatever. It'll be there. Um, Anything else uh, next week? So we don't have a full June schedule yet. Next week, I'm going to be reading Less by Sean Andrew Greer. Yeah. Uh, and we will get the rest of that schedule out uh, by then, before then, uh, we'll figure it out. We're both traveling this week and a little bit of next week, so it's 
a chaotic time, but we're going to, we're going to keep reading books and we're going to keep telling you about the them. podcast. Keeps sailing. The seas never yep. settle. Yep. Yep. Seas never, seas never sleep and neither do we. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, everybody. All right, mateys until we, uh, hoist the top sail with you next time. Try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.